Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Pam Reese, a former yoga instructor, now offering her many skills to help women in corporate America achieve success, but more importantly, to become their best selves. She recounts the two pivotal moments in her life, watching her father lose his job and career quite suddenly, then later his diagnosis of Alzheimer's. As his caretaker, she tells us what she learned in saying a long goodbye to her dad. The imperative of living the life you want now and not imagining it somewhere in the distance. Please welcome Pam Reese. Let me be me, let me rap, 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 rap that vision. It's a different map. Whipping down the last page singing. Welcome, Pam, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and the question is Has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? I think that there were probably two. One was when my father lost his job at a company that he had been with all his working life. And I saw what that did to him, not just from stability, but also his identity and feeling like he had put this amount of time in his his loyalty. You know, he felt um, quite betrayed. So I think that was one thing that made me hesitant to go the route of a quote unquote normal job because I always felt like I didn't want to have that control passed on to somebody else. It made me very nervous. So I'd like to say that it made me brave and that I was just going to fare forward on my own. I think in reality, uh, when I was much younger, it was really more a fear of giving over that kind of power to somebody who it could be taken away at any point. So I saw the fragility of that. So I was in college, my freshman year in college. And now that I think about it, you know, that's for me, at least when I was first starting to think about, so what do I do after college? So what is my, my plan after this? And I think that really shook it. It shook it from thinking I thought I wanted to go into journalism or work in advertising. And that just opened things up to think, well, Maybe. I'm I'm not so sure. Yeah. So I think that changed it. Yeah. So was it that you were seeking uh, stability instead of actually going for something that you were passionate about, but maybe didn't have, you know, quite the guarantees? I think it was more that I didn't see him necessarily love his job. And I think that actually was a big part of it that I thought the message that I got was, wow, he put all this time in worked his way up, was very loyal to this company. And then in a snap, it's gone. And so why would I go do something that I didn't really love or care about and put that kind of time in when it could be taken away instantly? And how did your father respond? I mean, so for men, especially, their career is 
completely their entire identity, right? And you see a lot of men when they retire, sort of, you know, not knowing what to do with themselves. They don't have a social network like women create. They don't generally have hobbies. You know, it's like a rare man who has like all of that in place when he is no longer working full time. So did you see your father really struggling and that also made an emotional impact on you? Yes, very much. Because later I realized that his struggle with that was the identity piece of it. Not so much the stability, but the identity of that. And it did really shake him for a long time. And it took him a while to get back from that. And he did. But, you know, he also came from a generation of, you know, first of all, that generation, he grew up in the deep South, And he was really the first in his family to go to college and really build a career. So it was a big blow to him. And can I ask what it was he did in what field he was working? Sure. Well, it was really, it was, it was marketing and advertising, but it was for a specific industry. We, I grew up in North Carolina in the furniture capital of the world. So everything was pretty much around furniture. (laughs) So, so it was that focus. Yeah. So usually when you know, you're describing a period in time of being a college student that is really about, I call it trying on different identities, right? You're really able to try to figure out who you are. And, and even though you graduate, you still have no idea, but you know, you have this sense of like, oh, and, and a sense of opportunity, right? Like there's a fearlessness at that age. I mean, I can imagine the impact of you watching your father sort of losing not just his livelihood, but his identity and the emotional fallout from that. How did it hamper your ability to kind of do that exploration fully? And more importantly, to allow yourself to do that exploration? Well, it was, it was very scary about stability and it it shook what I thought stability was. But I think at the same time, what happened was I, my, my best friend had moved to New York in the city. And so I would come visit her a lot. So I met people who were artists and writers and they worked in film and TV production. And so they had very different kinds of jobs than what I had ever seen. So I, at the same time, was exposed to, oh, there is another path that you can carve out. And so you don't have to follow what you've known or what you've been told is the stable path to go. And so that opened my eyes up at the same time. Yeah. So I think that it was the parallel. So it opened your eyes and you didn't feel any inhibition or fears kind of holding you back. I had inhibitions because again, I think coming from where I came from, which is a very small town in the South, you aren't really, again, at least in my culture, it wasn't really about carving your path and getting attention and making a name for yourself and standing out and finding what works for you. It was a lot more about conforming. And I don't mean that as something dismissive of that. It just, that's the way it was. And that's the way it worked best for people. So there wasn't a huge encouragement to go figure out something else, something new and different and find what works for you. So I was definitely inhibited by that. but. Again, that lesson of seeing your identity be wrapped up in a job career that doesn't fulfill you, that was always in the back of my mind. 
that was always looping in there that you don't want to do that. I guess it's so weird, but I mean, in a way it created a sense of freedom for you, right? Like you didn't, you were like, I don't need to go down certain roads that are expected because who knows, right? The life is, you know, not predictable. And so therefore I can do whatever it is that I think I should do. So is that kind of what you were experiencing when you came to New York? Well, I really see it sort of visually that that moment of him losing his job and that realization for me was kind of this bump over in a different direction that I thought I was going in one direction. It bumped me into a different direction. And then my eyes were opened when I came to New York. And so I really think that was just the impetus of being able to come to New York and then see what the possibilities were. And then you mentioned a second inflection point. So can you kind of tell us what that other moment was? Sure. So it, it also goes back to my father. Um, it was, well, probably almost 15 years now, perhaps longer, uh, that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he recently passed away from that. But it was that shift of, I think it changed from, again, I think solidified that the importance of doing what you love, doing something that you're happy with, whether that's your career or however you live your life, because it's very fragile. It solidified that, but it also shifted my focus on more than just the mind-body connection, really about your lifestyle. What do you do that you have this fulfilling life? And in in all areas, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, socially. And that became a much more important piece or more urgent piece in my life. So what had you been doing when you got to New York? Like you said, you were um, you had considered journalism, but you went in a different direction. So what direction was that exactly? So I did end up going somewhat into advertising. I ended up doing a casting. I was a casting director for TV commercials. So I did that for many years. And that was great because I got to travel around the country and sort of, quote unquote, discover people for commercials. And then I sort of burned out from the ad business and I became a yoga teacher. And as you know, you know, a lot of us are coming from, <laughs> come from burned out places. <laughs> and uh, so I became a yoga teacher, did that for about 20 years. And then that morphed into working with mostly women, uh, very high-powered, career-focused women who were just overwhelmed with stress and anxiety, especially when it came time to presenting to their board or pitching an idea. So I started to work with them on not just the breathing of how you can project your voice, but what that does to your nervous system and body awareness. And then it sort of brought in the, all the old casting director pieces as well, helping people with what lines to hit and that kind of thing. So that morphed in from the yoga. And then that has then since morphed to working with people more specifically on anxiety and brain health and creating that dimensional lifestyle for health. So when your father was diagnosed, how many years have it been since he lost his job? And I know you said that he found his footing again, but how many years was that? 10 to 15 years. Hard to say because Alzheimer's, you know, is usually 
diagnosed much later than when it starts. But I'm, but I firmly believe that it had a strong effect. Yeah. The stress of that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So my father is currently suffering from dementia, um, cognitive dementia, but he's also 93. Mm-hmm. So he's had a long life. So as painful as it is to watch someone who had been like so cerebral and a thinker not remembering whether or not he had lunch half an hour ago is really, really challenging. But I have the perspective of like, he's old. I mean, he's had a very full life and a very interesting life. So I can kind of be somewhat sanguine about it and not get really emotionally distraught over the experience of watching my father basically disappearing from us on some level. So what was that like for you? Because you already witnessed him sort of his fragility, you know, because of what happened when he lost his job. And then to see him now grappling with such a debilitating and a degenerative disease over so many years. It was the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through. Absolutely. It's impossible to really describe until, you know, when you meet someone who is in a similar situation and their parent has been diagnosed at a younger age, there's this knowing amongst us. Because as you said, there's a certain point when someone is much older, as you said, you can be a bit more sanguine about it. But uh, when they're younger, it's devastating. That's the only word that I know to describe it. It's devastating. And it brings up a lot of, because people don't have their mental faculties. So a lot of things, it brings up triggers from family stuff. It's, It's a lot. And was your mom his main caretaker or? No, they had divorced when I was in uh, high school and I'm the only child. So there was really nobody else and there was nobody else involved with that. Yes, but I was in New York and he was in North Carolina. So that was challenging. So I had, I have another interviewee who talked about taking care of her mom who ended up with a very serious mental illness. And when you switch roles of like the parent is now the child and you are the caregiver, it can really complicate sort of your own emotional faculty on some level. So how did you navigate that as you became his main caregiver? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I did. <laughs> I might still be trying to figure it out because it's every range of human emotion that happens with that that there is incredible sadness, there's frustration, there's anger, there's deep love. It's all of it, all of it simultaneously. But, and I don't think that this is necessarily the right thing to do, but I know that my MO is to just go into that, okay, this is what we have to get done. This is what we need to do. And so I compartmentalize and I put those feelings off to the side while you just get what's needs to be done while you get it done. Yeah. And I think that's a common thread with people who um, go through something really, really challenging is the ability to compartmentalize on some level. But what I've noticed is that there's always a moment where there will be emotional reckoning, right? And it could be years from when you overcame the cancer or, you know, lost a spouse or whatever it is. It could take years. Did you hit that moment yet? Or what was that moment for you? I think that it wasn't really until he passed or when he was in the, 
process of actively dying, that it all really hit because there wasn't anything I could do anymore, right? I could not do anything more. And I guess that's it. As far as, you know, the, that checklist of, does he have, is he in the right place? Is the, you know, the, the nursing and everything and all those components that you need to make sure that he's safe. Once there's really nothing else for planning to do, then I think that was then the reckoning where the floodgates opened. And grief is so interesting because in some ways it's bottomless. And then over time, the grief changes on some level. So I'm going to ask two questions. So first, you probably had to grieve the father that you knew, right? When you get a diagnosis like Alzheimer's, you know that the person that you loved and knew is no longer that person. So there's that grief of losing him as the way you remembered him. And then the grief of actually really losing him. How was that experience in terms of you being able to kind of parse the emotional stuff to kind of move forward? Well, you know, the thing which is sad about Alzheimer's is that it's a very long goodbye. I had thought that because it was this very long goodbye, that when the actual goodbye, when he passed to another plane, I did not realize how difficult that would be because I guess I had thought You've been saying goodbye all along. So I don't know that I've really reconciled that yet. I don't know that I will. I don't I don't know that that's possible. So getting back to that moment, interestingly, I'm an only child of my parents' marriage, but I have half siblings. There's that sense of like you're really alone, right? That once you lose your father and your mother, you really are not tethered to anybody else. And that can be kind of loaded for people. And so did that also kind of bring up stuff for you as you were saying the long goodbye and then the final goodbye? I don't know that it brought up a lot about being alone. And I think perhaps that's because I have always been an only child. I've just always been much more of a loner in general. I don't think it brought up necessarily that piece of it. But yeah, I've always known that I'm a loner and and just sort of accepted that piece of it. So as you get older, like facing your own mortality and the fact that you don't have children, right, Pam? Correct. Now. Right. So so in a sense, like if you lose your spouse, like you are truly alone. Like, have you had to kind of right. grapple with that on some level? Oh, yeah. 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 And it is a very, I think you just used the word, it's a very untethered feeling to think that's it. There's my mom and there's my husband. That's my family. And obviously I have extended family of aunts and uncles and cousins, but of the people who are there close to you, they're my family. And that's not a lot as I get to, you know, be in my mid fifties. It is absolutely something that you come up against. But again, I think it's that lesson of, well, then do your best to contribute and do your best to enjoy while you're here. 
So it's interesting that those two inflection points that had to do with your dad kind of really shifted your life focus in a way, right? Like you're and almost philosophically <laughs> the first time you were like, oh, well, why get myself all wrapped up in a career, or a company when that can be taken away at any moment? So therefore, I should form my own identity. And then you sort of mentioned the fact that when you faced his illness, that you started to look at the totality of your life and all of the elements to create a life that feels more meaningful for you. So what were some of the changes that you made during that period that you still kind of are, that is part of your life today, I suppose? A lot of it is being comfortable with saying no to things that just don't fit for me. Quite honestly, that could be a blend of having this shift from my father's diagnosis and passing. It could also be becoming a woman of a certain age that you just get to a point of not trying to conform into whether it is a job or a job offer or any, any kind of work opportunity of being more comfortable to say no that my plans are with people who are really, really important to me. And I'm pr very protective of my energy and downtime that I need. So I can't say that it's, it's anything specific that I got up and moved to a different location or anything like that. But it's that day-to-day -day awareness of what's really important and who is important, what kind of energy you want to be around and staying focused on that. During the time that you were his caregiver, did you ever grapple with sort of your own guilt? That another interviewee was talking about the fact that she felt guilty for wanting to focus on her life, not necessarily taking care of her mother 24 hours a day, right? That even though she, that was her choice and she, she did it out of love, and yet at the same time, she started to lose a sense of her own self and she started to, you know, deal with her own guilt. Like, oh, that's self-indulgent for me to think about what I want to do next. I should be worried about my mother. So did you ever grapple with that when you were um, taking care of him from afar? Loads and tons of guilt, like an enormous backpack of guilt. Absolutely. In all fairness, because while I was caregiver from the perspective of of coordinating and planning and making sure it happened. I was not there. There were, you know, the most wonderful nurses and people at the facility and caregivers who, who really took care of him on a day-to-day -day basis. So I can't claim any kind of responsibility for that piece of it. I was in the mode of how do I do that and make sure that he's safe. But the guilt piece was definitely, well, do I just uproot my life here in New York and, and move back to North Carolina? Should I be doing that? Should I try to have him here? It just logistically didn't make sense. So yeah, there was a lot of guilt on that. Because there's a legal component to that, right? Because then you become sort of power of attorney and you're making all of the decisions that he can no longer make. And so therefore there's the loaded pressure of not just caring for him physically, but also legally and then emotionally. So while you were going through that from afar and, and my other interview, it was the same thing. She was not there. So she was, you know, doing it from a distance. Do you think distance helped or made it worse? 
I think perhaps for me, as I said, my MO is, okay, let's make a checklist and cover all our bases. This is what we do. And I go into that mindset. I think that perhaps being at a distance that helped to do that because otherwise I would probably be taken down emotionally. That distance allowed me to function really and get those things done. I think if I was there in person, I don't know that I would have been able to efficiently do that. And perhaps efficiently is not the right word, but I would not have made the decisions from a clear eyed point of view to really help. So we kind of danced around this question of, so grief being never ending, where in the process of your own grief do you think you are? You know, weirdly when, you know, my dad passed immediately after that, because obviously there's such a relief for him. You know, there's such a relief that he is in a better place. So I think I had this moment of breathing easier and feeling like he's in a good place now. But after that, uh, I would say five or six months after that is when it really hit. And it's the sadness, you know, of the life that he had before and was not able to live. And questions of, did I always make the right choice for him? So I think I'm still in the, there's certainly sadness and there's a certain amount of peace, but I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm looking back at everything as to, did I do it right? Did I do it right for him? That's, that's where I am. Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough question to be grappling with. So the other piece of that is as you do this work of using your experience to help others, right, kind of find their voice or feel more empowered, like how do you apply the fact that you are still in some ways grappling with it, still trying to parse out for yourself, like where you are? And does that affect or inform the work that you're doing? It, It definitely does. Because I think with anything, the more human experience that you have, you know, certainly the bigger your empathy grows. And I've always thought of myself as an empathetic person, but certainly you are able to see how people do what, what I did, what, what a lot of us do. You just fare forward, you put on the, you steal yourself and you keep going and you press that, whether it's grief or responsibility or sadness, you tuck it away into some part of you, physically, mentally. So I think that it has definitely informed when I'm working with people to, you know, as as cliche as it sounds, just always keep in mind, everybody has a challenge that you have, you know, nothing about. So true. So I always know with death, it's the absence of the person, right? Do you have those moments where you just feel that absence immensely? Somewhat, but to be honest, again, because I think it's such a long goodbye with that, I had grown used to that. It's more thinking about his life prior. And those are the moments that I think about. But it's interesting how grief somehow then opens up, at least for me, that flood of memories from much, much further back. Because again, I'm not in the moment of needing to figure out what do we need to do today. So suddenly everything can open up and you can look back and relive a lot of great things, great times. 
it's a lovely place to end, actually. I'm going to ask you the last question and everybody's been listening. So some people have actually been preparing and I'm trying to surprise people. <laughs> oh God, I'll hit pause. <laughs> right? Like, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually change it up for you. So if you could find a song that speaks to your dad, what would that song be and why? Gosh, that's tough. A song for him. I don't know. All I can say is I know it would have to do with strength. Well, a song that I really like, and I'm not quite even sure why, but um, Into the Mystic. It's a Van Morrison song. I think I mostly like the melody, but but the Into the Mystic, it's, you know, there is Let Your Soul and Spirit Fly as a line in there. I think that would be for him. Yeah. And do you think that he's flying now? Yeah. 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 That his soul gets to be unbound. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, Pam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. The first Phoenix Tales live event to celebrate the Phoenix Tales community was held with great success March 1st in New York City. We would like to thank the following sponsors for their support of the event and the Phoenix Tales community. Dania Duke at Hilton San Diego Gas Lamp Quarters. Nancy Donahue of Keller Williams, New York. Melissa Ortiz of Prime Guide Partners. Studio 1040. Ellen Greenberg of Quick Culture. Patricia Ruiz of Moving Strength, Barrett Kirkaby of Body Mechanics, Yanti Amos, Lululemon Ambassador, and the Lululemon on East 61st Street in New York City. Thank you again for all your support. Please be on the lookout for next year's event, which will be held again in New York City. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.